Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 79 of Carol Pop. Our guest this week is producer Brad Wood. I first got to know Brad in the early 1990s when I was writing the Homefront Local Heroes column for the Chicago Tribune, as well as a monthly column for Tower Records Pulse magazine about who was recording what at which Chicago studios. I talked with Brad Wood or Brian Deck at Idful Music, their Wicker Park studio, and Brad would tell me about projects he was producing for bands such as the Groove Diggers, Freakwater, and Tar. He'd also keep me up to date on Shrimp Boat, the San Precop fronted band in which he was a drummer. Running a studio was tough, and Brad wasn't sure about his long-term future. Then he produced a Lightning in a Bottle album that is held up as a landmark. Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville, released 30 years ago this June. He played drums on the album, too, and on Fair's subsequent tour, and he produced her follow-up album, Whip Smart. A few years later, he was producing another female-fronted breakout act from Chicago, Veruca Salt. He produced the single Seether first, then the album American Thighs, initially released on Jim Powers' Minty Fresh label, before being picked up by Geffen Records. Brad went on to produce many more bands and albums in Chicago and later in the studio in Los Angeles' San Fernando Valley. That's where he now works and lives. He was the initial producer on Smashing Pumpkin's 1998 album, Adore, before things ended badly, and he produced the Bangles' 2003 comeback album, Doll Revolution. I was out at his studio in 2014, watching Veruca Salt work on their reunion album, Ghost Notes, after they patched things up. Brad Wood is a great talker and musicologist, so this conversation is a two-parter. In this, part one, he discusses growing up in Rockford, Illinois, where he fell for the power pop of Cheap Trick, yet trained as a jazz saxophonist. How did he make the transition from aspiring jazz musician to indie rock producer? What was it about the sound of late 80s and early 90s music production that he wanted to correct? Technology and equipment aside, how has his producing approach changed over the past three decades? Or has it? How did Brad Wood and Brian Deck end up in Wicker Park, and what was it seen like back then? What did Brad see as the distinction between Wicker Park bands, such as Urge Overkill, and Northside bands, such as Smashing Pumpkins? Where did his studio's name Idful come from? I didn't know the answer, and it's quite cool. When Wood produced the band Trench Mouth, did he think its drummer would go on to a long comedy career on Saturday Night Live and beyond? The drummer, by the way, was Fred Armisen. How did Wood connect with Liz Fair, and what was it about her and her music that made him think he had just heard a successor to Patti Smith and Bob Dylan? How did he wind up producing Exile in Guyville when he originally was hired just to engineer? What was the breakthrough song on which Fair and he set the template for the sound and feel of this classic album? There's much more, both this week and next. Please enjoy this carol pop conversation with Brad Wood. So what are you working on right now? Uh, a band called Wyo, W-Y-O, like the abbreviation for the state, um, Wyoming, and mixing their third album and um, finishing up a Northern Irish band uh, from Derry, Northern Ireland, called Sister Ghost. Um, that's on the label that's run by Davey and Gary Lightbody from... Oh man, <laughs> uh, Snow Patrol. 
Um, and that's wrapping up. We're just in final revisions and hoping to get that mastered soon. Then next week, Sun, uh, Sun O, uh, the, the metal band comes in, um, for a week of work for, um, for a new release for them. And then lots of Atmos stuff. So what is your facility like? You got a, you have a place where they track, you have, I think that you have a rehearsal space there too. Like what's the setup? The setup is this room, which is the guest house in my backyard. And it's a control room with a bunch of stuff back there is a bathroom. And then uh, outside this building is a standalone garage that we converted to the tracking room. And that's where I'll do pre-production and obviously record bands. And it's completely soundproofed, more so, more soundproofed than this room is. So I first got to know you and first talked to you back in like 1990 to 92. I had a column in the Tribune's Friday section. It was the home front column slash local heroes. Local heroes was the profile of bands such as Shrimp Boat, which you were in. And then also for Pulse Magazine, the monthly Tower Records magazine, I did this too. And I would just do updates on who was in the studios in Chicago. And I would call you guys every month and say, who's it idful? And then I would write up stuff like, like I found, you know, December 21st, 1990, a few heavy hitting labels are still pursuing shrimp boat, which just played the knitting factory in New York, but nothing is final. We're learning that it's a slow process says drummer, Brad Wood, who also co-runs it full music where the band finished recording its latest album to end day in August. How is what you're doing now different from what you were doing back then? My initial response to that question is almost nothing is different. <laughs> Consistency is good. The actual act of recording a band or, you know, an artist for me hasn't changed almost at all. Um, other than the format not being tape anymore, uh, almost everything else about it is the same. And uh, there's been an evolution in the tools that I use on the back end, meaning the device you record to. And also uh, the reduction in prevalence of hardware that you would put sound through, although I still have some of that. Uh, so a lot of it is just computer-based now. So as far as like the technical aspect, that's probably undergone the most change since I started. But from a uh, process, as far as like what I do in a recording studio, very little has changed in 30 plus years. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's the truth. <laughs> so is it, and is that like a philosophical thing or just a practical thing or both? Honestly, I don't know that almost anything about how I record and what my role is as a record producer or engineer has altered since before I even started. Um, we started Idful Music Corporation Brian Deck and I and Dan Sonis, but it was Brian Deck and I who were the college friends who had developed this idea of um, this concept that there really wasn't a whole lot of good sounding um, rock and roll being made at the time. And we're talking 1983, four, five, unless it was coming from England, and there's a lot of great recording coming from there, or a handful of engineers or producers here in the States. And the idea was to uh, you know, try it out, put our money where our mouth is, see if we can actually make things that sound at least as good as the, the least good things that we were hearing. And uh, a lot of that has to do with the philosophy. Um, Idful Music's uh, motto was don't feed the suits, don't fuck the talent. And that's a, you know, 
that means that people who are the suits in Chicago in the mid 80s, that would have been um, advertising companies, you know, creative directors. Uh, I loosely use that term, air quotes, creative directors. Um, uh, the recording studio industry in Chicago was clearly driven by the relatively stable and good profits that could be derived from catering to com music for commercials, composed for and realized just to sell a car or a Twinkie or cellular phone service. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that was not what we wanted to do. We wanted to record idful music, music from the id, the old Freudian, you know, half-assed ideas about the ego and the superego and the id. And it was a Psych 101 class that we took in college that led us to come up with the term idful. And so if somebody was doing something particularly raw and intense and emotional musically, we'd say, that dude's really idful. And, and, and that literally turned into... You know, the name of our company, Idful Music Corporation, with the giant corporation, the word itself on the logo, uh, stamped over a good portion of the word music because we were we were really good Gen X, you know, we were real cynical bastards even then, especially then. Um, so, yes, my uh, philosophy about how to record a band, what my role is, has hardly changed at all. And that actually predates me doing the actual job. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing had I not had a really steadfast idea about what my or what an engineer slash producer's role is in the recording studio. I wouldn't even gotten started had I done. I, I did this out of grievance. <laughs> I did this. I did this to set the record straight or at least try. I mean, and that's just the honest truth. It wasn't even born out of a joy of recording. It was born out of dissatisfaction with hearing a band that I liked on an indie rock label get signed by a major and immediately make one of the worst sounding things or the most horrible sounding thing they'd ever made. And wondering why that was. So you you wanted stuff to sound more good because you thought stuff didn't sound good enough. So define that because there's there's a specific thing that you mean by good that I bet you know obviously your commercial producers would not think is good. The hiring of musicians who aren't in the band to perform anything that the band members themselves are attempting to play. I'm not talking about bringing in a mandolin player or a string section. I'm talking about bringing in a different drummer because the drummer that who's been in the band for a number of years probably is deemed not good enough to cut you know to cut it in the recording studio taking the burden of a record producer and placing it on a hapless drummer usually it's a drummer sometimes a guitar player sometimes it's everybody and hiring crack musicians who technically are better but who may not have any or don't have by dint of their not being actual members and having spent time in rehearsals, on the phone, in meetings, in the van, going through all the things that make up a band, you know, dynamic. But they do have technical facility and they come in and they do a pretty good facsimile of what maybe this poor hapless drummer who's actually in the band would be doing. And um, so that's first and foremost. Uh, there are some great bands out there, and one of them we'll talk about later, I'm assuming, <laughs> where, uh, you know, as an all-girl band in the 1980s, they were under tremendous pressure to give up their roles, hand over the drumsticks, hand over the guitars and the guitar picks, and to focus on um, sales 
and um, and they lost that argument or didn't even have that argument, depending on who you're talking to and what album we're talking about. But um, so that's first and foremost. And in Chicago, as somebody who was a fan of punk rock and a student of jazz um, and a lover of indie rock, although we didn't call it indie rock back then, it was just bands that were regional, like anything on Twin Tone. I'd go see those bands play and it was inspiring. And I would listen to the Velvet Underground and and the Modern Lovers and early Talking Heads. And I would hear mistakes as a tr classically trained jazz, you know, trained saxophone player, I could hear when the kick drum fell out of the pocket or if there was some slop. But rock and roll for me wasn't where I was looking for technical precision. I got that via the classical music and the jazz music I listened to and sometimes played. What I looked for in rock and roll was to be inspired and emotional uh, responses. And that's what I did have initially. And that's what rock and roll has almost always been for me. I don't need to listen to Frank Zappa. He's, he was an amazing musician and put out amazing, technically proficient records, but he isn't the artist that I'm going to go to when I want to, you know, be impressed by technical ability. As a jazz trained musician and classically, you know, trained musician, that's not where, uh, what I turned to rock and roll for. I was inspired by initially, um, you know, the who, who's next. My next door neighbor gave me a copy of it when I was 12 or something or 10 for my birthday. And I, I absolutely loved who's next and listened to Bob O'Reilly and won't get fooled again, like hundreds of times and skateboarded to it. And, and I even listened to, um, you know, free for all by Ted Nugent, anything that would get the blood going. And of course my deep love for ACDC, my abiding love for early ACDC, the Bon Scott era. I just love that band, but I was clearly looking for and responding to something that wasn't like a, a masculine or a, you know, like a technical display of mastery. Um, I was looking for emotional delivery, clearly, uh, whether it was prurient like ACDC or whether it was like Pete Townsend, you know, really smart social commentary, uh, super self-aware, um, humorous, um, self-effacing, and also like toxic, caustic at times, um, and painful. Uh, I love that. And then when I discovered punk rock via Time Magazine, um, because I lived in the middle of the Midwest, then the whole thing changed for me. And, and, uh, and that's how I wanted to record rock and roll ever since. It was this idea that, you know, trust the band, let them play their instruments. Uh, I was seeing plenty of bands, um, before I started recording them because I was in bands, the more r punk rock and hard rock or, you know, uh, indie rock bands that I was seeing, the more I was convinced that when they made their records, they oftentimes weren't very good. Uh, be, you know, something's going wrong here. There's a translation problem between what the band is doing when I see them play in a little bar in Madison, Wisconsin or Rockford, Illinois or DeKalb, Illinois. And then when they step into a recording studio, something's getting lost in translation. And that was what inspired me in the end to open the studio with Brian. Right. Because there are some people who would say, oh, this doesn't sound good. It should sound like Steely Dan's Asia, you know, and like that would be someone else's idea of what sounds good, that sort of pristine studio quality. And 
the thing that's great about your albums is that is is the feel. It's not like sort of a technical thing. Like, wow, he has the he has the, he has this snare sound that no one's ever gotten in the history of recorded music. I mean, your snare sound is great, actually, but it's but it's more that you're responding to you you're, you're feeling something when you're listening to the music, and it's and that's a more nebulous thing to achieve. Um, and yet, it seems like that's what your goal was going into it. Not to say that I don't think Steely Dan records sound bad. They sound great. They sound great for the style of music and the taste level or the taste choices of the people involved. And I own some Steely Dan and I don't hate them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I do enjoy Steely Dan, but I, but I enjoy Steely Dan for something different than I enjoy Exile on Guyville or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. You know, to, each, uh, to each sound and each artist uh, a purpose, preferably. And what I don't like and what I, I hardly ever respond to is... Um, is rock musicians trying to do music that serves too many purposes for my tastes. That doesn't mean that Mr. Mister can't be your favorite band, but Mr. Mister was anathema to me. Um, you know, everything that was wrong with music was, you know, in uh, a Mr. Mister album or a song. Um, they probably put out a couple <laughs> good ones. I don't know. But, uh, or for instance, like, uh, you know, Jefferson Starship, we, we built this city. Like that's terrible music. And, uh, you know, like it doesn't satisfy anything other th in me other than the desire to, you know, rant and rave, turn it off back when I was younger and I had an opinion that would wind me up. Uh, so, yeah, what a, partly of what I do and what we had to withstand at Idful, I can't speak for Brian, but I can speak for myself, was understanding that uh, in addition to being a novice recording engineer, but somehow having found himself co-owning a recording studio. <laughs> uh, I had naivete uh, uh, and lack of knowledge about some of the aspects of the technical part to record. But I also had an aesthetic that was by design probably not going to shine much of a spotlight on me, if ever, not very much. And as I learned, because I've been a fan of Steve Albini's uh, Originally, his uh, written output when he wrote for Matter magazine, when he was a student, a journalism student at Northwestern, but eventually when he put out the Lungs EP with Big Black, which I bought and I have an original version of it. <laughs> if you're going to do uh, an understated um, production role, and like Steve, uh, you know, who refuses to actually call himself a record producer, you abdicate or you just refuse to sort of, you know, be an actual, you know, calling yourself a record producer and actually not doing the quote unquote, traditional job of record production, which can be invasive and have all the things that I don't like. At least Steve has a superior intellect and an ability to, you know, synthesize ideas and concepts early, kind of before maybe, you know, his cohort in general. He also is a great writer and maybe as smart about journalism as anyone that's ever interviewed him ever, going back to when he was, you know, a college student. Right. And and so Steve has uh, benefited from his particular, particular and kind of peculiar um, skill set and gifts that go beyond his musical, you know, gifts, because he's a great musician as well and songwriter. You know, I've been a fan of his for over 40 years. Um, and it didn't start with him as a record producer or, or, or as an engineer or recordist or whatever you want to call it. So one of the things that... Uh, that I knew going into this that I didn't have was um, some of those uh, 
some some of those gifts that Steve's got. Um, I I can't draw attention to myself um, in the way that Steve does by saying smart and sometimes aggressively provocative things in the press. I also don't didn't front a band that um, that put out sometimes transgressive music, always provocative music. Um, I was a fan of it, and I played in bands eventually when I was in Chicago that um, did their own interesting things. <laughs> but uh, I knew that one of the challenges of opening my studio and recording the way I record was that there was a good chance that um, what I do in the recording studio was never going to be appreciated. And it, 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 was, it was exactly that. It took a really long time for me to overcome that to the degree that I've overcome it. Well, because you had some some stuff that was really successful and acclaimed. But I'm going to back up before we get to that. I'm going to back up a little bit. So you grew up in Rockford, right? Yes. And you, did you learn sax first? Was that your first instrument? Yes. Piano as a child, mm, kindergarten, until until I, my sister brought home a saxophone. Uh, she was a, older than me and a clarinetist. And um, our grandfather had purchased her an alto saxophone for her birthday or Christmas or something because she was interested. And then um, I opened it up when, we, when she came home and I saw it and I immediately fell in love with it. And I waited till everybody left and I took it into my dad's office and locked the door and put it together and tried to make sounds with it and um, began a love affair with that instrument that kind of unabated to this day. <laughs> I was nine, eight or nine years old. So did you envision this future of you being this jazz player, basically? Yeah, that was always my goal. I wanted to be a Sonny Rollins or Dexter Gordon. I mean, didn't want to be John Coltrane because because uh, he died young. <laughs> but uh, those are my heroes. Um, John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, uh, man, and Dexter Gordon. Um, those are just three of the coolest humans that have ever lived. <laughs> And uh, had their posters on the wall, pictures I'd cut out of Downbeat magazine. And I owned dozens and dozens of their albums and transcribed hundreds of their solos by the time I got out of high school. Wow. So yeah. so how did you pursue that then beyond high school? And at what point did you pick up the drumsticks? By the, I started taking lessons from my sister's clarinet teacher, who uh, Kenny Stein, who, you know, still around in Rockford. He's a multi-woodwind player with a doctorate um, in music performance or education or maybe both. And he was teaching my sister clarinet and flute. And, um, but his main instrument is saxophone, jazz saxophone, and also an amazing classical player. There's a limited catalog of music, classical music uh, written for saxophone, but the, the few great concertos like the Glazunov concerto are, you know, really well known among saxophone players. And Kenny was really good at playing that. But, uh, so my dad said, you know, come along with us. Um, and Ken agreed to teach me. So my sister would usually play, f do her half hour lesson first, and then I would sit and wait um, and, and on the couch <laughs> in their front porch. And then, uh, then I would have my lesson. And when I got a little bit older, eventually, um, you know, we did separate lessons. And eventually my sister went to college. She's five years older than I am. And I continued with Ken right up through graduating high school. And um, it was pretty clear right away that I was going to be good at playing saxophone. And in the fifth grade, uh, in grade, you know, grade school, I was in a talent show, and I won that. I played King of the Road and Raindrops Came Falling on My Head solo, just standing there. And everyone else played um, 45s. I, they danced to 
you know, some music or they would lip sync to it. Um, I was the only one that actually played an instrument. I just stood there by myself, terrified, and played these two songs, which I'd practiced for weeks for. And I won by, like, you know, unanimous applause by the whole school. <laughs> and that, on the way back to my class in fifth grade, walking up the stairway, the, you know, stairwell, all these kids in my class and different classes going up and, like, slapped me on the back. I'm carrying my saxophone case. Having just won this thing, that was when I knew that, uh, yeah, I wanted to do this. So, yeah, that's it. And then uh, eventually I, I got a scholarship to go to school at Northern Illinois University, which has a great jazz program. Um, and I was a bit recruited by Steve Duke, who um, run, ran the studio, uh, the saxophone studio there. He was the saxophone, you know, teacher. So that was really cool. I only applied to a handful of schools, but that one gave me a pretty hefty performance scholarship. And, uh, and also Steve Duke is the best living classical saxophonist ever, maybe ever, <laughs> just an amazing alto saxophonist and um, a deep intellectual and a real educator dedicated to education. And I kind of owe Ken Stein and Steve Duke almost everything. Um, wouldn't have done any of the things that I've done had it not been for Ken initially. And then Steve is the guy that got me to think about things other than playing saxophone. Um, I picked up bass because it's a single note melodic line instrument primarily. Um, I didn't want to play jazz bass. I'm already a jazz saxophonist and I play, I think in, I think in melody lines, less quarterly in my mind. I think that's just because I played saxophone instead of piano. I think in like monophonically, you know, top line stuff. So picking, picking up bass was cool. Uh, but I bought a bass in 1985 from a pawn shop in Rockford for 50 bucks. And the reason I did that was because I wanted to play rock bass specifically. Yeah, uh, sure. Electric, electric bass guitar where you didn't get a big double bass or something. No, I didn't want to play jazz. I didn't want to play jazz really kind of at all. If it wasn't going to be saxophone I, and, and drums came later. So that was 1985. I bought a guitar that year, which I still have the bass. I still have, um, and it was to play rock music. Um, I've really kind of siloed my rock and my jazz, although all the music composition stuff I've learned and the jazz training I've had leaks into my playing in my record production. But when it came to like what kind of bands I wanted to be a bass player in or for play drums for, never jazz. <laughs> jazz, you know, so I do kind of silo things. Picked up drums, um, because Shrimp Boat's drummer quit, and they asked me if I'd audition, even though I'd never actually sat down behind a drum kit. So that's how I... I didn't start until I joined Shrimp Boat. So they knew you already and just said, hey, we need a drummer, learn drums? Yeah, I'd recorded um, their debut vinyl album, Speckly. So you recorded them before you were in the band. I didn't... I didn't. I was just sort of assuming you were in the band the whole time. I didn't realize that you jo no. joined after Speckly. <laughs> no, we, we, uh, the, uh, IDFL opened officially in, in January or February of 1989. I think it was January or February. And the, I think everyone in Shrimp Boat came to the party um, because uh, of a mutual friend who invited them and thought it would be a good fit. Maybe they'd want to record and, and we needed all the work we could get. And they were kind enough to take a chance. They started the record with Brian Deck, but Brian had already had um, plans at a different studio. I think he was working with Sold American, I think. So he could only start the record. And the idea was that I would finish it. And that was the very first time I'd ever 
um, worked on an album, you know, where I was at the helm. But it started with Brian. Brian had tracked a few things, and then they came in and set things up, and we tracked a bunch more, and I, I finished the record. And then I joined the band after that. So where did you go from, I'm going to be, you know, Sonny Rollins playing at the Jazz Showcase to I'm going to open this Wicker Park, uh, you know, recording studio with my college friend? The desire to listen to rock music became a desire to play rock music long before I actually started playing it. I, I was in a, uh, a wedding band. We play proms, weddings, formals, and also write original songs. I started, I joined that band at 15 in high school, joined the union at 15, actually. Um, and those guys were all older uh, than most of us. So five, six, seven years older, I think. Um, but I was playing rock saxophone. I was playing jazz, you know, a jazz saxophone is playing in a rock band. Um, so we did a lot of Bruce Springsteen and we would play Just the Way You Are by Billy Joel. And I play Phil Woods solo note for note because Phil Woods is a was an amazing, you know, bebop saxophonist hired for the session to play, play that iconic solo. So that was really fun. And we would play Maneater by, you know, Hall and Oates, anything with a saxophone on it. I was, uh, you know, I'm going to be there. The, our band was going to record, play that. We didn't aspire. Uh, well, no, we aspired to greatness, but we, we didn't achieve all that much, but we sure were, sure had a lot of fun playing in that band. Uh, so I was around rock music, but I also found myself playing a lot of tambourine, <laughs> uh, the occasional keyboard part. I bought a couple of synthesizers. I wasn't really an integral part of the band, and I wanted to be, if I was going to play rock and roll, doing something more integral. Plus, just rock saxophone is you know really easy to make fun of. Clarence Clemens, I love that guy, and he he was a big personality and a huge part of what you know, Bruce Springsteen E Street Band was, but I didn't want to be him. I, I didn't really like his solos all that much. They weren't challenging, even when I was 15 years old, to learn and play. He didn't play through the changes ever. He was more of an old-fashioned rock and roll saxophone player, which is more just pentatonics and, you know, not that interesting, to be honest, you know? Um, I have a... I've never not, not admired the big man. He was great, and I... Uh, loved watching, you know, him play, he, you know, but I just didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to just be deployed occasionally as a saxophone player and otherwise be playing tambourine. It's just, I got less enamored of that. At the same time that's happening in college, I'm realizing that I'm never going to be a world-class jazz saxophonist ever. Just not going to happen. I was playing amongst, you know, a cohort of saxophone players just at NIU. Again, it's a great jazz school and a great teacher, a saxophone teacher, dragging in some of the best players around the, from around the country, maybe the world, and um, getting, my, uh, getting my ass handed to me on a daily basis. <laughs> I, I, you know, as good as I was, uh, state champion in jazz ensemble and getting this scholarship, I was never going to be that good. And I remember going to see Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers when he had the Marsalis brothers, you know, Winton. Teenager, teenage Winton, and even younger teenage Branford. Branford was younger than me, and I left Joe Siegel's jazz showcase and got in my car and and cried. Like <laughs> I'm never going to be that good. You were inspired and broken at the same time. I wasn't inspired at all. I was broken. <laughs> it was it was really hard. It was really hard. And my saxophone teacher Steve Steve Duke did a, a lot to help hear what I was saying and see where I was going. I think that this is a 
this can't be an uncommon situation where the best player from a podunk city like Rockford, Illinois, runs up against the buzzsaw of reality. <laughs> and the reality is I ain't ever going to be the improviser that I wanted to be. Um, but I also had a deep love of classical music. And I, for a while, played bassoon and oboe and excelled at any of it. And I could read music really well. I could just, I could read down a chart or an orchestral you know, thing, not make any mistakes. And that's, that's really where I excelled. My, imp- my improvisation charts, uh, chops, I just don't know that I ever had the ability to play at the speed and the tempos that, um, that came really naturally to other, like, of my peers in college. Um, I definitely understand it. Maybe I even might understand it better than the people who could play better than me. But it was just, it was, I, I just hit the bubble. I hit the ceiling, you know? I mean, it was like, it was like a sporting event where, you know, you really are great at what you're doing and you're grinding away and you're getting, you know, you're making incremental gains year to year because of the hard work you're doing. And then you come across somebody like Michael Jordan, say, if you're a basketball player. And that guy out of the box is already, you know, as a sophomore in high school, like, yeah, I, he can just do things that that none of the rest of us could do. And that's how I felt ultimately about saxophone, was that I had been working really hard for what became smaller and smaller, incremental gains. And I felt like time was a-wasting. And, um, and that's why I threw myself into playing rock music. And I walked into playing rock music with a knowledge of it, um, of music theory, that I don't know that anybody I knew had. And I don't know that that's changed a whole lot, you know, compared to, you know, 1988 to now. I don't know that many of the artists I work with have the music theory chops that I've got. Some months ago, I talked to Chris Stamey and... Jeff Murphy of shoes like back to back and Chris Stamey is very deep into music theory and very knowledgeable and approaches it in sort of a way of like, he's, he's definitely trying to do interesting things, um, with the, all that knowledge at his disposal. And, you know, shoes was totally instinctive group where they're like, Oh, we're playing these chords and these sound really great together. And, you know, both of them wrote great songs. I mean, even Stamey and Holesapple in the DBs came at it from different points of view. Um, I don't know whether you find it easier to work with one or the other. I mean, you know, Liz Fair is someone who was in that kind of instinctive, you know, realm, like she was playing chords that she didn't know what they were, but she was making fantastic music out of it. I, I'd have to think about it, but I, uh, off the top of my head, I don't think I really have a preference. Um, I have an affinity for working with people who are entirely self-taught. Um, I don't think I have a prejudice against people who are self-taught or or not technically good by the standards that are applied. Um, and I think that that's my abiding love of rock music as a as a vehicle to deliver a message. Right. So I think that uh, I don't know if there are a whole lot of record producers out there who have as much jazz and classical music theory as I have, who also... Uh, have a love of of a naive approach, self-taught approach to rock music that might actually rival, like that love is is, is kind of greater in me than my desire for uh, technical excellence. I don't really give a shit about technical excellence. In fact, I I remain a skeptic of it. I I've watched it in the bands I've been in myself, and I've watched it in myself as I became more proficient playing rock bass. I found myself making choices that sounded more like 
every other bass player and less like the ones that I was making when I was um, less technically adept. There's a danger with rock music performing it where the performers gain enough skill that the thing that makes things magical and click stop working and you can't almost ever go backwards. Um, it's why so many of your favorite artists stopped making records that really mattered to you because they got just good enough to, to care. <laughs> and, and, and instead of playing based on pure intuition or the id, they started uh, thinking and they just, uh, you know, w we defeat ourselves all the time as humans. We start to think about things and we start to think about, we get self-conscious. And as soon as self-consciousness comes in, unless you're really super self-aware, that self-consciousness is corrosive as hell. And with rock music as, as a, a medium to uh, express some, some things that are maybe even, uh, you know, you're incapable in any other medium to, to communicate. Think of Kurt Cobain and the kinds of howls of anguish. Um, that's a really dangerous place to be. And I think in the recording studio is when artists are, are especially rock musicians, are really vulnerable um, because they're hearing back maybe for the first time or, or at least the first time where it really, quote unquote, matters. Um, they're hearing back their performances as per players or singers. And um, we all have a problem hearing our voice uh, played back, right? To this day, it bothers me. But, uh, but the same thing for a drummer or a bass player or a guitar player. That's their voice as well. And that kind of scrutiny oftentimes will force them in the final moments when they're really not ready or able to do it to suddenly try to be more proficient than they actually are because they have this idea in their head about what they should be able to perform. And they get really apologetic and embarrassed and self-conscious about their playing. And what I need to remind them almost constantly is that, hey, man, the things that got you to get here, you know, that caused it, the, you know, the circumstances for your band to get together or these songs to be, you know, put together and enough people to sort of, you know, commit to you and say, here, here's money, go make a record, or you've gathered up enough funds to go make a record. That stuff's still valid. We'll get through this together. You're not, you know, you're not failing by any measure that matters to me. And, and, uh, and that's not changed at all in 30 plus years. you start in you're, you're in wicker park you're like next to a laundromat as i recall yes. um and and wicker park was around that time early 90s became kind of like this focal point like it was the scene like seattle you know was the scene for you know for grunge and wicker park was the scene for whatever was going on what was that scene like and how did you fit into it oh uh, the scene actually i'm sure Wicker Park historians would say it started a lot earlier than that. So it was just an inexpensive place that had uh, access to the, um, you know, to the L with the with the Damon Avenue stop, and um, it had been a really glorious uh, place where a lot of like Logan Square was, where a lot of um, you know captains of industry lived, and uh, there were you know politicians had you know beautiful houses along the actual Wicker Park itself, and same thing with Logan Square. Um, but that had fallen into disrepair in the 70s. So a lot of these big buildings uh, where there were factories on Milwaukee Avenue and sweatshops, they had, you know, sat empty for years. 
And eventually the artist community moved in, sort of like Greenwich Village, where, you know, painters and sculptors and and other types of uh, visual artists who need a lot of canvas and space and sky and light, you know, <laughs> moved there because it was inexpensive, because it was a rundown neighborhood that had been um, mostly fled by the wealthier white people who didn't like the changes and they left. So when I moved there in 87, I moved there because it was the cheapest place in Chicago that was close to downtown that I could afford. And, and also the path of least resistance had a friend who needed uh, a roommate. So it just was cheap, dirt cheap. And you could get really cool spaces. You could rent a big apartment for a fraction of the cost of anywhere around there. But the downside was that your car got broken into, if you had a car, <laughs> almost nightly. It seemed like a weekly occurrence. You know, someone pop a window or... Um, you know, uh, if I had a, sun, a cloth sunroof on my Renault car, they'd slash the roof and, you know, steal whatever they could find, even though there was nothing in there. I was, sometimes for sport or for practice, they would just, you know, break windows or slash your tires. There's a lot of mayhem. It was a dangerous neighborhood, definitely in 1987. Um, we built Idful because it was a really inexpensive area to rent space. No other reason. We looked all over the place, and Wicker Park remained, at that time, the least expensive, close to the city, you know, like close to downtown neighborhood that we could, and there were maybe a few others, like Lake Street and Ashland, we probably could have afforded there, but that was literally like a, a drug bazaar, you know, it was, and it really wasn't that much, uh, that less expensive, Um uh, Wicker Park worked out really well, but it wasn't where um, we looked initially because we, we thought we needed to be closer to where other recording studios were in order to get some of that runoff, you know, where it wouldn't be such a trek to come out to uh, you know, our studio in, uh, in um, River North or whatever. Um, but that didn't work out, and I'm glad it didn't because those areas were already too expensive, and they were filled with the kind of, you know, dickheads that you know, that part of Chicago is always filled with like just sporty guys and people who worked on the board of trade, you know, like greed heads, money guys and advertising schmoes. I, I, I had a, I, I have a, an abiding distaste for that, that bro culture that Chicago really has doubled down on for, for decades and decades. I don't like it, you know, so I didn't want to be around it. Wicker Park's a bunch of cool people. I already lived there for a bunch of years. Uh, great bars, mostly owned by the people that started them or their sons or daughters. Um, great diners, you know, like Sophie's Busy Bee. These are, you know, cantankerous, tough people that would put out a really nice plate of food or serve you up, you know, a cold, you know, old style for like 75 cents or, you know, plate of food for very little money, Podolanka, you know, like uh, really good food and cheap. And we were dirt poor. So um, turns out that a bunch of musicians were doing the same thing. And so we opened up in 88 and there you are, you know, the easiest studio that within walking distance and bands would sometimes just wheel their amps over on the sidewalk. Wouldn't even bother to put it in the car because they'd only live around the block. So... Was it a, a supportive scene in general? Like the band sort of root for each other and help each other out or did it feel more competitive? Uh, a lot of bands played on multi-band bills. Um, and I think that they supported themselves, each other um, cordially. Th there were some, you know, really good uh, relationships clearly between um, Shrimp Boat and um, the Cocktails. They, they were friends of some of the members of, the, uh, of Shrimp Boat. 
and they were in Kansas City, I think, you know, at the Art Institute there. And they would make the trek all the way up to open for us at uh, Phyllis's. And that was really fun. And eventually, you know, they moved to Chicago and, and established themselves in a really great way. So that was nice. Um, I don't know that prior to opening Idful uh, uh, that I was really meeting that many bands. Um, but once I did, they all seemed to know each other, unless they were uh, the rare Northside band. And there, I don't know if there still is, but there used to be a real defining sort of, you know, aesthetic between Northside bands and everybody else. And um, that would be like the batteries not included, West End, or initially maybe Lounge X, uh, Metro sort of circuit, Liars Club, eventually, Tryhards. You know, they were just trying too hard to become you know, famous. And, um, I found that galling, especially then. And, uh, and there was a sort of a North side aesthetic that, that we sort of noticed about, you know, how you present yourself, especially when you were going to see other bands. So yeah. would it have been like urge, urge, urge overkill was Wicker Park and Smashing Pumpkins were North side? I think geographically. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Pumpkins were a North side band. Um, but also just like Northside fans, the, 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 the audience that you would encounter back then in a Northside bar was different than what you'd get in Wicker Park. So the you know, audience that might show up on a Friday night at Phyllis's is really different than the audience you're going to get, you know, on the Northside at uh, gas bars or whatever. See, and I would go to Phyllis's and to Lounge Jacks. So I went to all of them. Yeah, but but I tell you what, I wouldn't do. I wouldn't go to those places like on a Wednesday night because it would be bands that I was not interested in that weren't doing anything that I found interesting. But I would go to Czar Bar on a Wednesday night because you would see Scissor Girls, right, or Trenchmouth. Yeah, for me, it just depended who was who was playing. But yeah, you produced Trenchmouth when when you were producing Trenchmouth, and their drummer was this guy Fred Armisen. Did you think this, this is a guy who's going to be on Saturday Night Live for eleven years? I wasn't surprised when he ended up on Saturday Night Live, uh, but I would I wouldn't wasn't predicting it then. He just was one of the funniest humans I'd ever encountered, and he also made everyone else in that band um, funnier. They were all really funny. Uh, he elevated everything. Uh, he also is one of the best drummers I've ever recorded. He's it's such a musical talent. Um, uh, a lot of a lot of creativity pouring off that guy, but but the entire band really, Chris and Damon and Wayne, uh, they, they're all really um, uh, energetic and creative and just funny. But some were more deadpan, like Damon. Um, Fred was just uh, and is like a force of nature, you know, and and a multi uh, multi talented. And it was an evidence then. I think really when it when it happened, when I realized, oh, this guy's destined for something different was when he went to South by Southwest and and was filming himself uh, or someone was filming him walking into like a seminar and he would just start talking and say, oh, you know, our, you know, Bob, the guy that's supposed to be doing the seminar is not here yet or he can't make it. And he'd just start, you know, talking about stuff that <laughs> and, you know, he's pranking them, punking stuff. And then he edited that together and was playing it at lounge jacks or something and we were just crying laughing and thinking oh my god oh that's what this guy is doing and uh and then it was not too long after that he departed you know to focus on his acting and comedy 
he also seems like such a sponge of music, musical knowledge. I saw a oh, bit where he was just like, he just like had a guitar and was playing like what punk rock guitar sounded like in every little micro era of punk rock, like how the Buzzcocks guitar sound was different from the Ramones guitar sound. And I was like, yeah. he's right. <laughs> That's really good. This is like, really, it's entertaining he, and very musically useful too. He wasn't doing that so much when, uh, when in the studio, because, you know, there was a job that needed to be done. And that was recording the drummer the of a band. Yeah. Yeah. Drumming in the band and like having, you know, paying attention to what else is being recorded, but always drop dead funny. The first person to say something insanely, like just make you cry laughing, you know, he, he just very aware of what was going on in the room. But again, having said that, everybody in that band was that way. I loved recording them. They were really fun to, you know, make records with as well as making serious music, but they, they always seemed to be having a really good time. And, and, it was infectious. So how did you connect with Liz Fair? Did she come to you and say, oh, you've produced, but did she say, oh, I, I really like your production of Tar or whatever, or how did no, that happen? No, that was John Henderson who made the connection. So John and I had met uh, probably at the Rainbow, and I think he'd been by the studio a few times. I don't remember exactly the circumstances, but we had known each other for a bit, and he was running um, his indie label, Feel Good All Over um, Records. And he had asked me if I'd be interested in recording an artist that he, whose record he wanted to produce and put out on his label. And I said, sure. Um, and her name is Liz Fair, and she's made this really cool cassette that you know, is kind of making the rounds. Um, the nearest opportunity to meet her was at uh, John Moore and Beck Dudley's wedding reception at Lounge Jacks that Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet were playing in 1991. Because John was going to be friends with Beck, and he was going to be there, and I was going to be there. And he's like, oh, you know, well, Liz is actually staying in my apartment in the spare bedroom, so I'll bring her, and uh, and you can meet then. So we met that night at John and Beck's uh, wedding reception, which was really nice. Beck um, lived around the corner for me until recently. Beck is great. I did not realize her pivotal role in all of this. I don't think she was aware of it either. <laughs> I mean, she was busy getting married to John. <laughs> but we met briefly, and we chatted over, you know, complimentary drinks. <laughs> I mean, it was a good night. Um, we, I don't remember anything that Liz and I said, uh, but the next night, um, John invited me over to uh, his apartment. So I walked over there and Liz wasn't feeling well and had gone to bed early. And I listened to six or eight of the girly sound, you know, songs and was completely blown away and then walked all the way home from Wicker Park uh, near Rainbow to my apartment or, um, on um, Milwaukee and Damon and was, I remember being cold, but I don't even know if it was cold, but I was like shaking with, you know, either cold and anticipation or nervousness or maybe just anticipation and like anxiety. Like I kept thinking, uh, like, don't fuck this up. Don't fuck this up. Like this, I've, I'd never heard anybody sing lyrics like that. And I kept thinking about Patti Smith and Bob Dylan. Oh, I mean, I immediately went to that. I mean, it was just that, that fast, you know. I'd, I'd not heard anything like that. Um, I had heard plenty. I'd heard, I, I, Do you remember I, what the songs were? No, I don't. I think it was probably, might have been fucking Run, um, maybe Divorce Song. I don't know if she'd written it by then. Um, I'm sorry. I don't remember. Maybe John remembers. Um, but that's a long time ago now. It was 1991. Sure. But I remember the reaction I had. Um, was that 
every now and then, I kept thinking like, this might be it. I was getting really frustrated by 1991 um, in my role as a recording, you know, stu- recording studio owner, co-owner and, and record producer. I worked on some stuff I really liked, but I didn't think I was getting ahead very much and running up against that, that occasion where, or that, 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 inst- you know, those, those occasions when a band or a reviewer w- wouldn't even mention who recorded it because I, you know, either not impressed them <laughs> or had been doing something that was so subtle that it wasn't gaining attention. Um, so I was just wondering if it was ever going to, if, if it was ever going to work, I was busy as hell, but I just wasn't making any money. I couldn't support myself. And I was still a janitor at the Chicago theater midnight to 8am. Uh, wow. and not every night, but uh, just often enough to, you know, pay my rent and, uh, you know, share the utilities. <laughs> so like Starship would play there and you'd be cleaning up the empty beer cups from Starship. Worse than that. It was worse than that. It was, uh, that was back when they didn't, uh, they weren't owned by whoever owns it now. And it was like a nonprofit that it, having trouble filling the room on a regular basis. So it would be like open for a corporate event. But the worst case scenario was when Steve Dahl, Steve and Gary, they had one of their anniversaries, their 10th anniversary or 20th anniversary. And they did like a week's worth of shows. Uh, and so all their drunk, stupid fans showed up and like vomited all oh over God. themselves in the bathrooms. And they literally broke, you know, the some urinals. Like, like, I don't know what they were hitting. I mean, their heads, I hope, something that wouldn't sustain real damage. Um, just, just a mess, like just, you know, crap and piss everywhere and toilets plugged up, overflowing. It was just a disaster. Just like, you know, the kind of, the kind of people that... Enjoy listening to Stephen Carey. That was a drag. Um, but usually, so in other words, you were ready for things to work out at the studio at this point, is what you're saying. Or not. I was already thinking about escape plans, too. You know, um, uh, I usually put a pretty uh, pretty tight timeline on myself when it comes to those things. Like, if I don't see results, I'll, I'll, I'll switch. And I often will do the switch um, quickly. I'll think about it for a long time, but I won't debate it out loud with anyone. I'll just make a quick change. And I, I, I've done that with bands I've been in and artists I've worked with and uh, careers, uh, relationships. You know, uh, I tend to stick around a long time, but when I go, I, I tend to also just, pew, you know, <laughs> just vaporize. I, you know, and I talk to a therapist every now and again about that habit. But uh, I've, I've learned to not be quite so rash, but I was also thinking at the time about how to get out of owning Idful and how just shutting it down. Um, not a lot of love lost on, on a facility. It was just a place to make records. And um, that particular facility had no windows in it at all. So Brian and I used to joke about how we built ourselves a really nice sounding prison and uh, a dungeon. We put ourselves in it and strapped ourselves to a chair, you know, for 12 hours a day, seven days a week for years without ever seeing the sun. And we made mistakes. And we were paying the price. And I, so I was getting a little burnt out in 91. I remember specifically feeling a little, you know, dejected by some of the career, lack of advancement with my career. And, um, you know, three, four years into working in this dark room, it was um, a bit of a drag. It wasn't the most aesthetically pleasing place to spend time. But you got good sounds out of it. Oh, yeah. It always sounded great. But that's only part of uh, a life, you know. So you heard Liz Fair and you thought the light. The light is going to come into Idful 
through this artist that I'm discovering. And did you think immediately like, okay, this is how I want to approach it. I want to put a band around her. I want her just to come in and play like, like what was, what was the thought process and how you approached that project and pitched her on it? I didn't pitch her about anything. Uh, it was all John, John Henderson, um, approached me to be the engineer because I and he was going to produce it originally. He was producing it. Okay. He was, he was paying for it. He was going to release it. He had production ideas and musicians to play with. I did some of the playing and other times there were other musicians that he brought in. They're all good players. And, um, and so my job was to make sure the microphones were the correct microphones and that everything worked and was recorded, you know, adequately enough. That's it. And um, the recording session started not too long after that, and we only did a handful of them, maybe four total, I think. But I could be wrong. Not many. We didn't get a lot recorded, and Liz and John did not get along in the studio at all. And that was really clear to me. And if I'm guilty of anything at that time, it was not helping John, not throwing him any kind of a lifeline. <laughs> uh uh, you know, because I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't know the dynamic. I didn't know if they were dating. I didn't know what really was going on other than he was supposed to be paying for it and that he was going to put it on his record label. I didn't know about any of his discussions about arrangement or who was going to play what. He would just say, uh, I think, you know, we're going to have a bass player and, and there, you know, be a bass player that day. You know, I, I'd like you to play drums. Okay, great. All right, I'll put it in record and I'll run out there. John, I'll show you how to hit play and record and stop so I can be out there. Um, I didn't have any ulterior motives, um, at all, really. Uh, I was, I was, I was attracted to Liz, um, physically, but that, um, that's not the first time that's happened to me. I, you know, I get attracted to all kinds of people, but, um, my job was to do my job and I stand by the idea that I did it, uh, pretty well. A lot of those songs, um, ended up on Guyville, um, but things fell apart between Liz and John. I just didn't really, if I knew what was going on, I might have tried to help give him some pointers, but he seemed confident. And he, to this day, he's really confident in his assessment of those sessions and the resultant album eventually, a couple years later when it came out. You know, he's he's filled with confidence about, about his role. Um, and I don't necessarily want to disagree. He did what he thought he should be doing, and he was committed to his vision. Liz didn't share it. And I'm also impressed with Liz's confidence for somebody who had never set foot in a recording studio in her entire life um, to not be so intimidated by the process and the, and the men, specifically men surrounding her, that she couldn't put her foot down and put a stop to it. She ended it after just a few sessions. And I hadn't seen that before either. And, did um, any of those original recordings make it onto the album or did you re-record yeah, it? Yeah. Uh, uh, I think the beginning of Johnny Sunshine is um, that bass player whose name, I'm sorry, uh, my apologies to him that I can't remember his name right now, but I play drums on that. So the first half of that song is him and I going, and maybe a couple other things. Um, I, can't re I can't remember off the top of my head right now. I think I might have done the drums to Divorce Song during those sessions, but I don't think I did. It's a bit of a blur um, because there's only a handful of sessions. Um, we also just did some warm-up stuff, like we did Wild Thing, which ended up being a B-side years later. Um, that was fun. 
We did some reggae stuff, you know, ersatz dub kind of things. Um, Say you will. That that stuff ended up on a one of the anniversary re-releases. I mixed it, you know, found the tracks. But uh, both Liz and John, I'm impressed to this day with their confidence in their own visions, even though they didn't line up and they ended up not being friends <laughs> for a while, and it was contentious. Um, again. I may be ignorant of this, but it seemed respectfully, like they just agreed to disagree. Like, I'm, I just don't want to make my record this way. And I know you're offering to pay for it and put me up in your apartment nearby and, and also, you know, put the record out and thank you, but no thanks. I'd rather not do it at all. I thought that was really impressive. And I like the fact that John, while disappointed, he never really took it out on me. I don't know if he did. I don't. I, I, I'm not Liz. I don't know how that relationship went. And I have not, I, I'm not really that interested in it. I mean, what, was, what I was reacting to was John saying, yeah, we're not going to make this record now. I mean, you know, I, it's on pause or, you know, whatever he said on the phone. Ah, oh, damn, that's too bad. I'm sorry. You know, and that's really how I felt. Um, it's a, uh, they were pretty emotionally um, uh, mature for some mid-20 kids who were, you know, working with material that was in some ways kind of like larger than either than any of us at the time, you know? How did you and Liz end up reconvening just the two of you in the studio and how much time passed at that point? I think it was late December when she and I decided to uh, get together. She went back to live with her parents in Winnetka and um, we decided to go see a movie together. We, We went to the Fine Arts to see some movie at the Fine Arts Theater downtown. And, um, and then I drove her back to her place, her parents' place. Um, and we, we talked about a bunch of stuff. And in the end, we decided we'd rather just focus on, like, let's, let's get back in the studio. But she didn't seem super interested in it. And it took a couple of times getting together. Uh, I think twice I went up to her place, um, like lunchtime. We, we went to the, her, we went to her, the country club, like, um, with her mom and we got, um, like crescent or like, you know, we got no finger sandwiches and we had, you know, a proper lunch there. And there was another time when Mrs. Fair and Liz attempted to make lunch for me, uh, at their house and they, they burned, uh, boiling water. (laughs) How do you burn boiling water? I don't understand. You'll have to ask Liz. She tried to, she and her mom tried to steam artichokes or something. I, you know, yeah, it was, um, it was fun. It was very waspy. And, but <laughs> her mother is a joy. And I, Dr. Fair is um, also, you know, intellectually a powerhouse. Um, never a dull moment with the, the Fair family. Um, Dr. and Mrs. Fair were, uh, are really funny and super smart and would ask interesting questions and had a genuine interest in what their daughter, their graduate, you know, Oberlin graduate was up to. Um, so it wasn't long after that. It was like two or three get-togethers, and eventually we decided let's um, let's try to make this happen. So one night, I think it was in January '92, I drove to Winnetka from Worker Park, picked her up, drove back to the studio. Um, she smoked a bunch of pot. I didn't smoke pot then, and we had a TV on, and we watched. Uh, but it wasn't cable; it was just regular, you know, re- receiver and. Um, public television was on and we were watching something about whales or whatever. 
and eventually got around to recording Fuck and Run. And that was it. We start to finish in one day, one night. And then I drove her back to her place, <laughs> like at midnight. Yeah, when we talked, when I did that piece for the Tribune, like what, 10 years ago now, you yeah. talked about that song being like sort of the the breakthrough where, it was. where you, she, you just sat behind the drum kit and she was playing it and you just pounded it out. And she was like, wait, I love this. And then you did another drum track on top of that. So that song has like a vocal, two drum tracks, and then you threw some sleigh bells on there and you were kind of singing, singing in the background up into the, the ceiling mic. So you could hear this other voice kind of in the background. Like you never would have gone into the song saying, let's do this. But you hear this other song in the background singing along for like parts of the verse and stuff like that. And that and now I realize that's you singing into the ceiling mic. I have a pretty good falsetto. Um, and that's it. All That's all I got for a singing voice. A pretty good falsetto. <laughs> so, yeah, we tracked, if I remember correctly, the guitar, her guitar to uh, two tracks of her guitar to a Yamaha RX-15 drum machine beat that I programmed because she liked to play to a click, either a percussion or a, you know, a drum machine beat. Rarely just a click, bink, 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 you know, like usually some sort of pattern. And then I asked her if I could play drums, and she was not into it. But after a little bit of cajoling, she let me go and do one pass. And while singing the second time, oh, I, I did one pass, one microphone on the drums, and um, in the lounge, because I had just like a few minutes to set up before she lost confidence in my approach <laughs> and shot everything down. So when Liz says go, you got to go fast before she changes her mind. And she still might change her mind after you've done something amazing. You, in your mind, you think it's amazing, but she's like, nope, doesn't work. So I set up, uh, you know, kick hi-hat and snare and in one microphone um, in the ceiling tiles <clears throat> above the kit. No time for a sound check or anything and just played. And uh, she loved it. And I walked in and she was dancing around all sweaty in the control room. And I said, oh, I made a bunch of mistakes. And she's like, no, it's perfect. Like, give me one more track. Just one. She was really, like, oh, you know, you're going to keep this one though, right? I'm like, yes, yes, don't worry. This one will be kept. But I didn't mute that one and I played to that. And sometimes I play in sync and other times I played, you know, off it. And uh, and she was, she lost her mind. She thought it was great. And we panned it hard left and right, the two drums. Um, and that second take, I sang a little bit because um, I was just inspired and it was joyful. And, uh, and that was it. And that's one of the, I'll never forget that night. That was one of the greatest moments of my career. Cool. Really cool. It seems like that song kind of captured the aesthetic you were going for on that record. By the time um, 1992 rolled around, Casey Rice had started working at Idful. And Casey is uh, a real student of music, especially punk rock. Not just a fan, but an actual performer of it. And... Um, and Casey knows what Casey's talking about. So um, that's a person who would hold, who, 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 would hold, who will hold your feet to the fire about aesthetics and about choice um, and listens really carefully. So Casey was already around and um, not for that session. And, uh, but by the time we buckled down and committed to making more songs, um, Casey was there all the time. So, Casey has a love of, of rock and roll and punk rock and enjoys some Rolling Stones. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to play drums more like Charlie Watt. And this is something that John Henderson wasn't interested in. He had maybe more of a Beach Boys, Pet Sounds kind of approach, more orc, orc pop kind of sound. 
that he was, I think that's what he was like envisioning. But I was re- really a fan of Charlie's playing, that minimal drumming, and uh, a lot of Liz's chord shapes sound like um, Keith Richards, uh, you know, Nashville tuning. So it just was a natural fit, and Casey fit right in with that. Well, she's basing the album on Exile on Main Street. Not, not then. No, not till later. Interesting. I mean, she had the songs written, and so they, so they obviously didn't always line up with Exile on Main Street. If she had like those songs, I mean, obviously they were on the girly, uh, the girly tapes from way back when. Most of them were, but it seems like it's a natural that you're playing like Charlie Watts, and she's got this Keith Richards stuff, and then comes up with this whole Exile. Guyville, you know, Main Street concept. We had spent a lot of time talking about how much we love the Stones. And I don't know that she'd ever sat around in a room and been uh, mansplained like uh, Casey and I were to her about what made, you know, Rolling Stones great and why Charlie Watts is a good drummer. And she was a good sport put up with her annoying, um, you know, force information. But uh, I love Charlie's playing, and I love Lee Von Helm's playing. And um, if you listen to any Shrimp Boat records that I play drums on, you're going to hear almost nothing but that. That's my style. Also, Curtis Mayfield's, you know, drummers, uh, you know, minimal, right? Minimal drumming, um, tight hi-hat, you know, all the stuff that makes um, for uh, that, that style. And also like, a drummer like Steve Jordan, who now is the drummer for the Stones, was a proponent of that, and you could hear him every night, five nights a week, back in the day, on Letterman Show. You know, and he, j- just a great drummer. Oh, there are a lot of great drummers who played that style, but that had fallen out of favor by the time, uh, you know, by the time I was there. So um, uh, we were already talking about Stones a lot, about you know, like just that minimal rhythm guitar playing, that you know, dry, um, kind of aggressively. Um, minimalistic kind of approach that the stones didn't always do but their best stuff in my mind is is like that and also girlfriend had come out and that's is that rick mank on drums i think Golly. it is yeah holy smokes like there's a guy who totally gets that aesthetic and you know uh, working with an artist who totally gets that aesthetic um with you know with engineers and mixers who are doing the right thing and also, I was really a fan of uh, Spiritualized's first album, Laser Guided Melodies. Um, and I'd met Jason uh, Spence um, when he was touring that album. He actually came to the studio and rang the doorbell, you know, just said, Hi, I'm Jason from Spiritualized. And I wanted to find out what Idful Music's about because he'd been listening to the stuff we'd been working on. So there was a, a there, you know, aesthetics that. Uh, Exciting choices that I really liked about Spaceman 3, but especially spiritualized as far as like reverbs and delays and letting things get really outer spacey, but keeping a, a tight, dry drum pulse in the center. I was really inspired by that. And you can hear that on a bunch of different tracks on Guyville. So it wasn't really all about the stones, but man, you know, nobody does the spiky spindly about to fall apart sound better than rolling stones yeah stratford on guy you've got those phasing that that sort of phasing effect on the the drums that's pretty cool was that just you saying oh this would this would sound cool on this because it does yeah yeah that's just um you know listening to Jimi hendrix and you know stuff from different eras and having two tape machines that were locked together with a simpty you know time code uh device um a Fostex 50, 40, 35, and you could change the offset in real time um, in a way that it would play back exactly the same way. So it's real 
tape flange, but it's uh, repeatable as opposed to back in the old days when you would have to, you know, put your hands on the reels of tape as they were in record so that um, you'd cause the flange that way. This is more repeatable and more specific. And I'd been experimenting it with it for a few years and it was a perfect opportunity to use that. When you were uh, working on the album and finishing up the album, did you always think I'm going to be the live drummer for when she starts touring? No, no, we hadn't talked about a band at all. <laughs> and she didn't really perform live at that point. She played a, a twice or something like that solo. Yeah. But like touring with the band, it was not something that had happened. No, no, not at all. Yeah, no, I because I remember you you talking about how like you would be playing and you guys couldn't hear yourselves because people were singing along so loudly. And she was just like, what the? That was amazing. <laughs> Amazing and scary. I mean, this is the big, fat, obvious question that you've been asked a bunch, but for the purposes of this conversation, it's a logical thing to cover. You knew when you finished it that you'd made a really good record, a great record. Did you have any idea of like the kind of response it was going to get and stay in power it would have in our culture? When the record was done and we were playing it off of sound tools onto quarter-inch tape and DAT backup, DAT, digital audio tape. Uh, Casey and Liz smoked a little pot sitting down in, on the couch in the control room. As we listened to this entire album, 18 songs played down for the last time before it went to mastering. I was going to fly to Arizona and master it with Roger Seibel in Phoenix. And um, so so Liz came by so we could hear it one last time, you know, and man, we knew we had done something special and we were joking around and trying to guess, you know, we asked each other like how many records, how many copies do you think it'll sell? And I don't remember what I, oh, I don't remember what Casey and Liz said, but I said, I think it'll sell 30. Um, because, you know, Casey's like, I think it'll sell like 15,000. And Liz is like, oh, what? You know, I think it'll sell like 5,000. And I go, I think it'll sell 30. And she's like, it's going to sell more than 30 copies. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm at 30,000. And she's like, oh, my God, you're like, you're crazy. It's 30,000. And I said then, and I, you know, I believed it then, and, and it turned out to be correct, is that if enough people who, had, who could be like tastemakers or, you know, critics heard this record, uh, the, if the right people heard it and then talked about it, it would, it would do well. And... And it turned out to be that way. There were, you know, reviewers who really got it. And Matador Records, you know, they're a great record label, savvy and smart. Um, they marketed it really well. And it did, it exceeded all of those expectations right away. So that was exciting. But um, I had a feeling that it was going to be an important record. If, if only for the, you know, who cares about my career, really, in the end? It was, uh, all of that's a crapshoot. There's... I can't control any of that. And so I don't really worry too much about that stuff. But what I was committed to from the first time I heard her music over at Hendrickson's house was like, here's a voice that I haven't heard before. Like, this is a songwriter whose writing style, for me at least, reminds me of um, a little bit of Joni Mitchell, but a lot of Bob Dylan and, and some Patti Smith. And those are three of the best American songwriters ever. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe my luck that now I've, you know, I've now, you know, co-produced an 18 song debut album that every single song is an example 
of this person's songwriting ability. I, I, really, the music is really kind of secondary, you know, at that point for me. Um, it was all about the lyrics. I'm like, I can't wait to, to see how people respond to what she's written. It was a joy to, to witness, you know, when it finally came out. That's it for episode 79 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Brad Wood for talking about music as knowledgeably as he produces it. You can follow him on Instagram at bradwood underscore producifer. Also go to his website, bradwoodmusic.com to learn more about him, to hear the music he has produced, and to hire him to record you. Please come back next week for part two of our conversation as he goes deeper into the making of Liz Fair's next two albums, Whip Smart and White Chocolate Space Egg, and what pulled them apart before they reunited for her most recent album, 2021's Soberish. He also recounts his bad experience with Billy Corgan and Smashing Pumpkins and better experiences with Veruca Salt, The Bangles, and more. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, a supernova of a producer himself. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caro Pop on Twitter at Caro Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Caro Pop website, caropop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you can hear about upcoming episodes and events. We promise not to spam you. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Caro Pop conversation. Thanks.